starting about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, we began having a weekend festivity every year right on what is traditionally called Easter weekend. There was actually a family that used to come up in the early, early days of GCA. They would come up from Atlanta, and there was a family farm here in Tennessee that they would come visit, and then they would come to GCA. And when they did that, they referred to it as coming home, which eventually became homecoming. And so we started saying, well, you know, we have our annual communion service on Resurrection Sunday, so one of your homecomings should be that Sunday. And then more people from the Internet started doing that. And each year, that weekend sort of grew and grew and became homecoming weekend for us. Well, this year, Easter is early. Easter's really early this year, last week of March, last weekend of March. And in fact, this is one of those years where the solar and lunar calendars are so far off from each other that Passover is actually several weeks after Easter this year. But partially because of the early date and partially because of other circumstances, we have decided that this year our homecoming weekend is going to be a much smaller event than it's been in years past. And we're only going to have our Sunday morning communion service, and then we'll have a meal here afterwards. And that's going to be our homecoming festivities for this year. Now, before anybody gets concerned, part of the reason for that was because the schedule was difficult being early this year. It was a difficult schedule for a lot of our regulars. And once we started taking a head count and getting some idea of who could and would be here, it became increasingly obvious that uh, we were going to be a tad thin on the ground this year. And so we decided rather than try to uh, press the issue this year, we would just get ready for 2017. And this year, no Saturday festivities here, no Saturday service, no Saturday meal, Sunday morning communion, just like always, and then stick around afterwards. We'll have our meal because... Nobody wanted to forego the opportunity to get some of Bertrill's cooking. And so we're going to uh, work out the Sunday meal thing. Pardon me? Uh, I didn't know if we were doing anything for Passover. No, not really, unless you want to. I wasn't sure. No blood on the lentils. No blood on the lentils. <laughs> I, see, I was going to make a comment like that, and I bit my tongue because I knew I could count on you. And so this year, a simpler weekend for homecoming weekend. And I need to start saying that as often as possible for the folk on the Internet so that they're aware of what our plans are. I will also put a blurb about it on our website, and I'll put it on my blog, and hopefully everybody will know so that they don't start making plans to drive or buy airplane tickets or anything. I was going to say turn to Matthew 24, which you can do, but it's going to be a while this morning before we actually get to the text of Matthew 24. This morning we're kind of going to engage in a crash course in Bible prophecy because Matthew 24 
follows a pattern that is typical of Old Testament prophecy. And if I were to simply jump into Matthew 24 without explaining sort of the format and without us having an understanding of how Old Testament prophecy works, it'll be much more difficult to understand it. And so this morning, I just want to start by talking about how Old Testament prophecy works and how that applies to Matthew 24 in very large generalities, and then we can dig into the details as we go. Because there are some very specific characteristics of Old Testament prophecy, and two in particular we're going to concentrate on this morning, and they both have to do with time and how the Old Testament prophets dealt with sequential events in time. The first thing that we're going to look at is the fact that Old Testament prophets oftentimes saw events that were going to happen very near in time and events that were going to happen very distant in time as one unbroken sequence. Did that sentence make sense? Oftentimes, when you hear people teaching about prophecy, they'll use the comparison, the analogous example of saying it's kind of like looking at a mountain range from a distance. That when you look at a mountain range from a distance, they all look like they're about the same distance away. And the closer you get to the mountain range, the more you discover that there's actually valleys in between the mountains and that some of the mountains you're looking at are actually much closer to you than the ones that are much further away. And that is the way that Old Testament prophecy oftentimes works. The prophets saw things that were coming, things that were future to them, and the things that were about to happen and the things that wouldn't happen hundreds and sometimes thousands of years later are all laid out sequentially as if they're all in the same time frame. But we know for a fact, through history and through the playing out of those prophecies, that in fact there are big gaps of time in the sequence. So let me show you a few examples of what I'm talking about, and then we can start talking about how it applies to Matthew 24. Turn to Daniel 11 for a moment. Daniel plays a very large role in Matthew 24. Jesus even names Daniel by name and references Daniel's prophecies, which, by the way, gives Daniel a phenomenal amount of credibility. If the Son of God comes to the planet and then confirms a particular prophecy, that's a pretty good indication that that prophet is speaking the truth. Pretty good recommendation. Pretty good recommendation. I think if you can go in with that on your resume, you're getting the gig. That's what I think. Now, the book of Daniel has been widely criticized by especially the late 19th century German higher critics, people who are critics of the Bible and familiar with Daniel, really struggle with Daniel and oftentimes will try to dismiss the book of Daniel simply because it is so phenomenally accurate. And Daniel did predict a series of things that are now history to us. And he predicted them so accurately 
that the critics have to get rid of it, have to dismiss that somehow. So they claimed that the book of Daniel was a forgery, and they say that it was written after the fact, and then written as if it all occurred during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and during the Medo-Persian overtaking of Babylon. And that could be the only explanation for how it is that Daniel knew these things in advance if he was alive when he said he was alive, and if he predicted the things that he has claimed to have predicted, then that means that prophecy is real and therefore miracles are genuine. And the critics simply cannot have that. Mm. Now, after the German higher critics tried to uh, late date the book of Daniel, the Qumran caves were discovered, and in the uh, multiplicity of scrolls and everything that were found in all these clay pots, they found pieces of Daniel and segments of Daniel, and, and they dated back to before the German higher critics thought it had to be written. God had what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls sitting there for thousands of years, so that right about mid-1900s, when people were going, the Bible's not true, God could have a couple of children stumble across a cave, and God could go, there it is, there's my word, I've had it preserved all this time out here in the desert, there it is for you. And so the book of Daniel has a tremendous amount of credibility, historic credibility, verifiable factual credibility, and then has Jesus' stamp of approval on it. So the book of Daniel, remarkably credible. So, because Daniel is so verifiably credible, we have to take a look at how Daniel's prophetic sequences work, especially knowing that Jesus makes direct reference to them in Matthew 24. Everybody understand the premise so far? If I lose anybody, let me know. In Daniel 11, we're going to start in verse 29. Daniel is predicting... What is going to happen in the latter days of Israel? Gosh, it's really hard to just start there. But through this whole section, he begins explaining the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, here's history for you. Daniel accurately predicts the succession of kingdoms that come after Nebuchadnezzar in both a figure of a statue and in the figure of a series of animals he lays out the sequence that after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, then the Medo-Persians are going to come in. The Medo-Persians he represents in animal figure as a bear that's lifted up on one side because eventually the Persians became more powerful than the Medes. They each had a king. There was Cyrus, the Persian king, and there's Darius the Mede, but eventually Cyrus became more powerful the bear also had three bones in his teeth in Daniel's prophecy because it was three major battles that brought the Medo-Persian Empire into its final seat of power. Now, after that, he predicted an animal that was like a leopard with wings who is later identified as the Greek kingdom and the first Greek king. We know him historically as Alexander the Great, who swept across that area of the world, the Middle East and Europe, so rapidly that he is likened to a leopard, the fastest running animal in the Middle East, with wings. So he's really fast. And then in the sequence, he then describes a nondescript beast. We're not really told what the beast looks like. 
and history tells us that that beast is Rome. So now let's back up just a little bit and talk about Alexander, because that's where the king of the north, king of the south, chapter 11 stuff begins. One of the predictions about the king of Greece that you find in the book of Daniel is that when he dies, that his power is not going to go to his posterity. Alexander the Great had a very young son, but he didn't end up ruling in his father's stead. Instead, when Alexander died, very young, in his early 30s, his kingdom was divided up among his four generals. Now, the Middle East, the place where Jerusalem is, because this is really what these prophecies are all about, is how they affect God's people, Israel and Jerusalem in particular, that area fell to a general by the name of Seleucus Nicator. And so that area becomes known as the Seleucid portion of the Alexandrian kingdom. And then south of him, Egypt, especially northern Egypt, northern Africa, that area falls to Ptolemy, a general named Ptolemy, with a silent P on the beginning, Ptolemy. In chapter 11, then, Seleucus Nicator becomes known as the king of the north. Ptolemy becomes the king of the south. And throughout the chapter, Daniel tells us just quick, rapid-fire details about several generations of the king of the north and the king of the south, the king of the north, the king of the south. And a succession of kings happens. And through this succession of kings, we finally end up with a king of the north who is a really bad guy, in fact, uh, In Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, we read, And in his place a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of the kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. We'll talk about the covenant thing as we go. So he's described as a despicable person. And he is the last king of the north that Daniel gives us. Now, history tells us that in the actual succession of kings in the Seleucid portion of Alexander's kingdom, which is the area of the Middle East, the area where Israel is, the last king of the north is a guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which basically means Antiochus is God. He gave himself that name as a show of great humility. He decided that he should be known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the fourth Antiochus. Some Greek students will pronounce his name Antiochus. I just, in my early years, formative years, heard it as Antiochus, and that's just stuck with me. I don't know which one's the right one. So Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, is the last king of the north, And in fact, he does some of the things that Daniel seems to allude to here. He actually is a despicable person. And he actually does profane the temple there in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And of course, swine blood is unclean blood. And in so doing, he has profaned the temple of God. Well, if the Old Testament remained by itself, 
then it would be easy to conclude that the final king of the north that Daniel was predicting was this Antiochus Epiphanes. But then Jesus comes on the stage of history. And in Matthew 24, he makes reference back to Daniel's prediction and says, and when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then get ready to flee. And what Jesus just did was that he took that final king of the north despicable person description and cast it out into the future. So you've got history that seems to have wrapped up at Antiochus Epiphanes, but then you have Jesus coming along and saying, that's still to be fulfilled, that's still coming. Now one of the big clues that Antiochus was not the beast that Daniel refers to many times, one of the big clues was during that final terrible ruler's reign, Jesus is going to come back. And that did not happen during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, if you want to read a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes, the intertestamental books, the books between the Old and the New Testament, the apocryphal books, include a book of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, which is about the Maccabean Rebellion, which is about the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. So you can read about all that. That's all genuine, verifiable Israel history. So here's my point. When you're reading Daniel, Daniel supplies us with a sequence. The sequence has actually played out in history based on the details he gave us about each of these succession of kings of the north and kings of the south. The things he describes about them actually do occur. And by the way, if you want to see that, I went through chapter 11, verse by verse, in detail in my book, A Brief History of the Future which you can find on our website and download for free as a PDF, or you can download it onto your Kindle for a big $2.99 by going to Amazon and downloading the book. And if you want to know all the details of Chapter 11, the King of the North, the King of the South, and all that, that's in the book. You can go read that there. But for the moment, all I want you to recognize is that the final King of the North is described like this. This is what I wanted to read. Daniel Chapter 11, starting at verse 29. At the appointed time, he, this is that final king of the north, will return and come into the south. So he's going to have an incursion, a war into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. In other words, he's not going to conquer as successfully as before. For the ships of Kittim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant. Like I said, we'll talk about that covenant soon. And then he'll take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. 
And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine and purge and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then that king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know, and he will honor him with gold and silver and costly stones and treasures, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Then he will enter into the beautiful land. That's Israel. That's Jerusalem. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and foremost, the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow on his heels, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas, and the beautiful holy mountain, and yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Okay, the point of reading all that is that it makes a couple references there to things that Jesus is going to bring up in Matthew 24. We read here that he's the one that's going to set up the abomination of desolation. Jesus then, in Matthew 24, is going to say, when you see the abomination of desolation, then flee. Okay, so that means that this man and the things he does, even though they are foreshadowed in Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus isn't the final culmination of this prophecy because Jesus himself cast it out into the future as something yet still to come. And Daniel kept referring to it as something that would happen in the last days. So when we get to Matthew 24, we're going to see a very similar thing. Jesus is going to describe events that are going to happen almost immediately in Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem happens in 70 AD. Titus, the Roman general, and his armies come in, break through the wall, tear down the temple, exactly as Jesus predicts. And so as we're reading through Matthew 24, much of it is going to be describing the events of AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so there is a, a theological subset, an eschatological viewpoint that is known as preterism. Have you heard of preterism before? Okay, well, preterism says that Matthew 24 is all about 
A.D. 70, the fall of the temple, Titus the Roman general, his armies, that horrible event. Because Matthew 24 does indeed describe and build up to that event. Because the things that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 are a response to the question, when will these things be? His disciples show him the temple. Show him all the outer buildings of the temple. Show him how grand it all is. And he says, not one stone of all this is going to be left standing. And they say to him, when? When is that going to happen? So the first part of what he has to say in Matthew 24 is a response to that question. And it certainly sounds in many ways like AD 70 could be the culmination. But the same way that the events of Daniel simply cannot be satisfied in Antiochus Epiphanes, we're going to discover that the events of Matthew 24 simply can't be satisfied completely in the events of AD 70. So as we go through Matthew 24, we're going to look at, okay, here's the foreshadow. The foreshadow is everything that happened in A.D. 70, but the culmination is still to come. The same thing that we see in Daniel. It looks like it's all about Antiochus Epiphanes, and it builds up to Antiochus Epiphanes, but the culmination isn't Antiochus, because Jesus himself cast it out into the future. There's still a fulfillment to be had of these things. You understand? Okay, now again, we're just talking about the way prophecy works. Turn back to Daniel 9 for a moment. Let me show you something else similar. Daniel chapter 9. This is where that covenant thing is going to come up. I told you in a moment we would talk about the covenant. And this is the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. Daniel has been taken from Jerusalem into Babylon... He was part of the first wave of deportees when Babylon took all the high, the mighty, the princes, the educated, the upper class. They came back later for the lower classes. Ezekiel, the prophet, is in that second deportation. But Daniel's in the first one. Now, Daniel is very aware of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prophecy has to do with Babylon, and Jeremiah is very specific to say that the time that they're going to be in Babylon is 70 years. So a specific period of time, 70 years. Now, Daniel has done the calculating and realizes that the 70 years have about run. And so he is praying to God, just do what you said you were going to do. The 70 years are about up. And the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, I'm going to tell you about 70 times 7. I'm going to tell you the next 490 years of what's going to happen to your people. So that's where we're reading. Let's actually start in verse 20, Daniel 9, verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. 
70 weeks have been decreed for your people. The word that is translated weeks there is just Shabua. It's the Hebrew word for seven. And so, you know, this is just an interesting fact of, of history. Nobody can explain why everybody thinks that a week is seven days. I mean, you go back in history and try to find why. Why, why does everybody think that we would count days by sevens and then form them into months and then years and stuff. Well, the only place where you see it is in the Bible. The Bible established it when in Genesis 1, God made everything in seven days. And so from that point forward in the Bible, seven becomes a number of completion. And so he starts off by saying 70 sevens have been determined for your people. Now, It's important to look at what Daniel's praying. He's praying and confessing his sin and the sin of his people, Israel. Because there's going to be a lot of references to your people, Daniel, your city, your people. That is Jerusalem and Israel. This has nothing to do with any Europeans or Australians or pygmies in Borneo. This has to do with Daniel's people, Israel, pygmies in Borneo. I know. I was just seeing if you were still listening. (laughs) I know it's a lot of information. You okay so far? Mm-hmm. You enjoying this? Mm-hmm. You hanging with this? Yes. Okay, good. I think this stuff is fascinating. Your people, your city, that's what this is about. So here come 490 years of prophecy about you and your city. Now, he doesn't say years here. He just says 77s. Some people have said, well, how do you know that it's years? Well, because it doesn't work if it's days. 490 days, absolutely nothing was accomplished. And in a moment, he's going to say what all needs to be accomplished. And so certain things have to be accomplished during these 490 years. Seventy-sevens have been determined, decreed, sovereignly decreed, apparently, for your people and your holy city to do six things. Here are the six things that have to occur sometime during this 490 years. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Okay, so some of these... I think we could argue Jesus may have accomplished during the time that he was on the planet. Certainly things like to make an end of sin or an atonement for iniquity. I think we could say, yeah, Jesus did that. But remember that from the time of Jeremiah, the holiest place in the temple has yet to be reconsecrated because the Ark of the Covenant's missing. And one of the things that has to be done is that they have to anoint the most holy place, the holy of holies. Okay, that hasn't been done yet, but it has to occur sometime in the 490 years. These things have to be accomplished. Or to seal up the vision and the prophecy. Has that happened? Well, no, because there are still prophetic things waiting to be done. But sometime during the 490 years, these things have to be accomplished. So some of them, we could argue, Jesus accomplished. Atonement for iniquity, I would say, yeah. Some of these, no way. But they have to be accomplished in the 490 years. 
verse 25. So, you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, why he broke it up into seven and 62, we don't really know. There are some people, some writers, some commentators who say that it's because the decree went out and then the decree was reestablished, and that's historically true. The first decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, the first decree to go rebuild it happened under Cyrus, the Persian king, and you can read about that stuff in uh, the books of uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. That's the period of time when all that occurred. But then the work under Nehemiah began, but it, it just wasn't really done. It wasn't really accomplished. And so there is another Persian prince by the name of Artaxerxes who later reestablished that covenant. And so the rebuilding effort begins again. So that all happened in the first seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a combination of 69 weeks altogether, but there's 70 weeks. So there's this other week hanging out there somewhere. And here's what we know. Whether we say that the starting place was Artaxerxes or whether we say that the starting place was Cyrus, what we know for sure is the 69 weeks culminate at Messiah the Prince. Because that's what it says here. From the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built again. The plaza, the moat, even in times of distress. Now, the first decree from Cyrus was to rebuild the temple, but the decree from Artaxerxes was to rebuild everything, the walls, the streets, the moats, everything again. And so Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, uh, The Coming Prince, and in his book, Daniel and the Critics' Den, he says that Artaxerxes is the starting point, and he does all the math, 360-day years, lunar years, all that, adjusts for leap years, everything else, and he concludes that the, the days ran to the exact day right up until Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is why Jesus was so upset with the leaders in Jerusalem for not understanding, quote, the day of their visitation. It's why Jesus said, even if these people were quiet, the rocks would cry out, because this day, this moment in time is such an essential moment as I ride in, the king of Jerusalem riding in, and that this was predicted. You should have known this. Daniel told you this was going to happen right now. You knew what the starting point was. The end point is here. And I'm here. But then here's what happens to him. Then after the 62 weeks, first there was seven weeks, then 62 weeks. So at the culmination of the 69 weeks of years, Messiah will be cut off. The NASB says, and have nothing. I think the King James says he'll be cut off, but not for himself. So we know that the end of the 69 weeks of years is Jesus in Jerusalem and dying, the crucifixion. So whatever else we say about the 69 weeks of years, we know they happened. But there's this other week. There's still this other seven years dangling out there in time. Then after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, so now you're introduced to this other character, this prince that is to come. Well, Daniel has been predicting consistently, whether it's the statue of Nebuchadnezzar with the golden head and then the silver chest and then the belly and sides of brass and then down into legs of iron and then into ten toes that are iron and clay that don't mix very well together. During that time of the ten-toed kingdom, he speaks about the little horn that is going to rise up and take three by force and the other seven give him the authority and you have this ten-toed loose amalgam kingdom led by the beast. And so Daniel has been predicting this the same way that I said he had a succession of animals. There was the lion and there was the bear and there was the leopard with wings and then there's this nondescript horrible beast. In each of his descriptions of that final kingdom and that final world ruler, Jesus comes back. A kingdom comes back. In the statue's case, it is a stone that comes down and crushes all the previous kingdoms and sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so the descriptions of Christ coming back during the time of this last kingdom, this world ruler, this horrible person, are, are replete in the book of Daniel. It's very, very consistent that whenever that final world ruler, we call him by the nickname Antichrist, he's also called the beast, he's also called the little horn, at whatever time his kingdom is on the planet, that's the time that Christ is going to come back and establish his kingdom that will never be destroyed. But one of the things that he's going to do is establish a covenant with the people of Israel. And first he's going to come in and destroy everything but he's going to make a covenant of peace with them for a little while. And you know how long the covenant of peace lasts? Seven years. It's a seven-year peace pact. And midway through, three and a half years in, he breaks the covenant. That's the covenant that Daniel's talking about, where people are going to rebel and people who are otherwise faithful are going to follow him instead. Look at verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations, remember he sets up the abomination of desolation. On the wings of abomination comes the one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate so I didn't read all of 26 let's just read that for context then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing but the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come like a flood even at the end there will be war and desolations are determined okay so what's my point in reading all that well because this gives us another hint about how prophecy works because it's a 70-week package. And we know that 69 of those weeks have occurred. But there's this other week hanging out there. And now we know who establishes the week. There is this evil prince to come who is going to make a covenant with the people of Israel for one week. Midway through that week, he's going to break the deal. You get into the book of Revelation and you read about 42 months. That's three and a half years. 42 months is described as time, times, and half a time, which is one, two, and a half. That's three and a half. It's also described as 1,260 days, which on a 30-day calendar 
is exactly three and a half years, 42 months. And so that three and a half plays very prominently in the book of Revelation because it's all about this Antichrist to come, how he's going to make a covenant, how he's going to break the covenant. But Jesus appears on the planet after the 69 weeks of years and then says in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, which means he still casts that out into the future, the final week, that last seven years, is still out in the future somewhere. And you're going to know it because this final world ruler who is going to take three nations, three kingdoms by force, the other seven are going to give him the authority, and he's going to make a seven-year pact with Israel. When that happens, there's going to be a time of peace and prosperity in Israel. And for three and a half years, they're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to reestablish the temple worship and all that. But then at the midpoint, he's going to cut off the sacrifices. He's going to cut off the offerings. And then the last three and a half years is a time of trouble on the planet, unprecedented. We'll get to all that when we get to Matthew 24. But here's my point, and I do have one. 69 weeks of years, when it was said to Daniel by Gabriel, it was one 490-year package. It was one 70 times 7, one package. But what we know from history is 69 weeks of years happened, and then there's this big gap of time that so far is about 2,000 years. This gap of time is still going on then the 70th week is going to happen. So, again, an example of a prophecy given to Daniel that looked like it was just going to run sequentially. The way it was described to Daniel, these things are just going to happen. 69 weeks of years, Messiah is going to be cut off, a prince is going to come, he's going to make a a one-week peace pact, a seven-year peace pact, and it looks like these things all happen sequentially. But we now know from looking back at it that sure enough, the 69 weeks of years happened exactly as Gabriel said, and they culminated exactly where he said, and Messiah did come and he was cut off, and all of that is accurate prophecy, and then it's almost like God hit the pause button on the 70 times 7. And we are now living in a period that Daniel refers to as the times of the Gentiles. This is the period of time where God is dealing with the church. Dealing with the Gentiles. Paul even picks it up in Romans 11 and tells us after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. So God inserted a period of time in between the 69th and 70th week. But Daniel saw it as one succession of things. You understand what I'm getting at? Because in Matthew 24, we're going to see Jesus do the same thing. He's going to be talking about things that happened in 70 A.D. And it's going to read like 70 A.D. And he's going to tell the apostles things that are going to happen to them before the 70 A.D. event. And then all of a sudden, his use of the word you is going to go from you who I'm talking to to you who are Israel. And then out into the future. And he does it exactly the way Gabriel did it with Daniel. So we have to be aware of that. You understand? Mm-hmm. Let me show you another example. 
turn to uh, Isaiah 61. Let's do this. Tom, you turn to Isaiah 61. The rest of us are going to turn to Luke 4. Turn to Luke 4. We're going to see Jesus give us an example of how to handle prophecy. We've talked about this before. I find it fascinating. Luke chapter 4. And meanwhile, Tom and anyone else who wants to is going to be in Isaiah 61, the first two verses. You know, Isaiah, in Isaiah 9-6, one of the phrases that we all kind of know from listening to Handel's Messiah, we all know that the prediction that Isaiah makes about the Messiah to come is that he says, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. The end of that is, for his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But in between, Isaiah says something really interesting. Because he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what's the next phrase? And the government will be upon his shoulders. Okay, so Jesus was born about 2,000 years ago. And unto us, he's speaking for Israel there, unto us a child was born. That's right, Jesus was born a Jew, and he was born within Israel, okay. And unto us a son is given. This is the son of God, who, who is given by God now. Okay, both of those are true. He is both a child born and a son given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Jesus never took up the reins of government. But we read continually that he's coming back to establish a kingdom where he's going to rule from David's throne. And all the nations of the earth are going to flow to Jerusalem. We read that too. So, was the child born and the son given? Yes, absolutely. Is he wonderful? Yeah. Mighty Father, Prince of Peace? Yes, absolutely. Did he take up the reins of government? Not yet. Is he going to? Yes. And that's all in one sentence. In Isaiah 9-6, again an example of how Isaiah could prophesy about the Messiah and see all these different elements of what Messiah would do, pack them all together into one prophecy, but time-wise, they play out in different epochs, eras, moments of time. Do you see that? Yes. Because we're going to bump into a similar thing in Matthew 24. And you have to know how prophecy works in order to get it. Let's see, you are in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and the rest of us are in Luke 4, 14 to 21. Luke 4, 14 is when Jesus has gone into the temple, and they handed the scroll of Isaiah to him rather providentially, and wasn't that lucky? And then we read that he opened Isaiah to where it says this particular thing, and he's going to quote right from Isaiah 61. And Tom's going to follow along with us because Jesus stopped the reading and left out a phrase. Here's what happened. Verse 14, Luke 4, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where this is written. 
the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Some of your translations will say to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and what comes after that in Isaiah 61, 2. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. In Isaiah, that prophecy continues past the phrase to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There's an and, there's a conjunction, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped in the middle of the sentence, verse 20, and he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, if he had said, this is the day of vengeance of our God, he couldn't say this scripture is fulfilled today. The fact that the Messiah had come and that the spirit of God was on him to go and preach the gospel to the poor and give sight to the blind and set at liberty the captives. All of that was being fulfilled right then and there as Jesus was on the planet. But the day of vengeance of our God hadn't occurred yet. He's going to talk about it in Matthew 24. He's going to talk about a tribulation coming on the planet unlike anything that had ever been or will ever be again. The day of the Lord. As we go on in the next few weeks, we're going to look at the various Old Testament descriptors of the day of the Lord. It is a time of God's terrible vengeance. But that's not what he came to do the first time. The first time he just came to do the first part of that prophecy and in the middle of a sentence, insert about 2,000 years. And Jesus did it. Jesus stopped right there and then said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, by the way, if the first multiple phrases of Isaiah 1 and 2 have been fulfilled genuinely and literally in the coming of Jesus to the planet, do you think the last phrase will be too? I'll tell you what, this will be fun. Everybody turn to Isaiah 61 for a moment. In the past, whenever I've taught this, I've kind of stopped at that phrase. But Isaiah 61 continues on to describe what that's going to be like. Because not only is it a time of the judgment of our God, but it is also the time of the restoration of Israel. And for those of you who have been with us on Wednesday nights or following along on the internet, you know that this is a consistent pattern within all of Old Testament prophecy. And the pattern is the prophecy of God's vengeance and judgments against Israel because he is angry at Israel for following their foreign gods and not following after his law. But in every one of the prophecies, they end up saying, and God's going to restore you. And Isaiah 61 does the same thing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Isaiah 61, verse 1, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant those who mourn in Zion, given them garland instead of ashes, and oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins and they will raise up the former devastations and they will repair the ruined cities and the desolation of many generations. And strangers will stand and pasture your flocks and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord, and you will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land Everlasting joy will be theirs, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of all the peoples, and all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in my Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and the bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and the garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations, before all the Gentiles. And so this is a promise to Israel of their ultimate restoration, restitution. And it comes on the heels of a time of judgment and a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. Okay, that's the exact same sequence of events that you see in Daniel. It's the same sequence of events that we're going to see in Matthew 24. It's the same sequence of events that you see in the book of Revelation. It's even the same sequence of events that Paul alludes to. So there is a time of trouble coming that is specifically Israel's problem, Israel's trouble. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel calls it a time of trouble such as never was. Jesus picks it up, calls it a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And Jesus casts it out into the future. So far, it hasn't occurred yet. This is one of those places where I said that the details of what's described in Matthew 24 simply cannot be satisfied in the events of A.D. 70. The events that happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 were horrific. But can we say that that was a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again? We've had a couple world wars. We've had Hitler. We've had the destruction of the Jews by the millions. Kind of hard to say that was as bad as as it ever was. It was terrible, but there's one preterist author out there who says that the way that 70 AD qualifies as the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again isn't in the breadth and scope of the actual destruction, but it was the worst ever because of who it was that was in the destruction. 
because the apostolic period kind of came to a close then and because the apostle Paul beheaded under Nero and because of all the uh, apostles being killed, that that's what makes it worse than it ever was or would be again. But the details in Matthew 24 simply don't fit that model because most of the apostles were actually crucified or killed or martyred outside of Jerusalem. And Matthew 24 is all about what takes place in Jerusalem. So, so again, there is no eschatology that can deal honestly with the Old Testament prophecies and then deal with Matthew 24 and deal with the book of Revelation, especially if the book of Revelation was written after 70 AD, which it was. If that's all a fact, then the only thing we can conclude is that what Jesus is going to tell us in Matthew 24 contains stuff that is yet to come. Mm. And it's about Israel because it's all about the 70 weeks and about your people, Daniel, and your city, Jerusalem. So it's not vague. It's very specific. It is understandable but it's understandable within the context of how Hebrew prophecy functions, how it works. Mm. Okay, I'm going to show you one more thing. Uh, turn to Daniel 2 one more time. Uh, we were in Daniel before I had you go to Isaiah, but go to Daniel 2 one more time. I told you earlier that there was a statue, Nebuchadnezzar. You're probably familiar with the story. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and then he brought in all his Chaldeans and his soothsayers, and he said, I've had a dream, and I need you to interpret the dream, and they all say, yeah, okay, I'm on, let's go, only they said it in a Chaldean language, yeah, okay, we're ready to go, and so he says, in order for me to know that you really know the interpretation, you have to tell me what the dream was, too, and they say, no king has ever demanded such a thing. So he raises the stakes and says, tell me the dream or die. After all, you're the Chaldeans and soothsayers. Cough it up. And they can't. And of course, they're panicked. And they go to Daniel and he says, what's the matter with you guys? And they say, well, the king has expected this ridiculous thing from us. And he says, I'll go pray and ask God. Don't worry. Let me go ask God about it. And he comes back with the dream and the interpretation of it. And it's the interpretation of it that is going to bring all this stuff I've said this morning into sharp relief. Okay? And then we will call it a morning. I warned you that we might not get to Matthew 24 this morning, but I hope I have adequately introduced Matthew 24 this morning. We are in Daniel 2. Let's start at verse 31. This is the dream. He's going to tell them what the dream is. You, O king, were looking, and behold... There was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its breasts and its arms were of silver. Its belly and its thighs were brass or bronze. Its legs were of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all crushed at the same time, 
and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them all away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And after that, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then a third kingdom of bronze that will come and rule the earth. Okay, so he just jumped from Babylon right through Medo-Persia into Greece, and now he wants to concentrate at verse 40 on what comes next. The legs are made of iron, and then the feet and toes, iron and clay, a miry mix that doesn't mix well together. Now, history tells us, and this is important, history tells us that the next kingdom in succession after the Greeks to rule the Middle East is the Roman Empire. When Daniel gets to the animals and the lion and the bear, and the, when he gets to the nondescript beast, people say, well, that also would be Rome, and some of the characteristics seem to be like Rome. But the important thing is that those animals don't just represent the kingdom, they represent the king. And he says that the lion stands up, becomes a man, and he's Nebuchadnezzar. And the same way that the silver two arms become Medo-Persia, become both Darius and Cyrus. The same way that the leopard becomes Alexander the Great. When you get to the next kingdom, there's no beast man. There's just this nondescript, terrible beast. And so some interpreters say, well, that's Rome, because in the succession of history, that's Rome. But what we're about to find out is, whenever that kingdom is on the planet, that's when Christ comes back. So it can't be Rome. By the way, the legs of iron being Rome is a good type, especially because Rome eventually divided into the Eastern and Western Empire, had two capitals, both Rome and Constantinople, and all of that was fine. And you get into the feet, and it is iron, but it's also miry clay, and it doesn't mix very well. So yes, it may have elements of the Roman Empire, but then again, the Middle East, Jerusalem was under the Roman Empire at some point. But listen to Daniel's interpretation, and you'll see that it can't be ultimately Rome, even though it sounds like Rome. Why is this important? Because in Matthew 24, it's going to sound like 70 AD. But ultimately, it's not going to be 70 AD. You understanding this? It's how prophecy works in the Bible. You have to understand this. Okay, so then verse 40, And there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron, it breaks in pieces and will crush and break all these things in pieces. Rome did that. Rome had a standing army that went through and just, unlike Greece, that would come in and try to kind of convert people and learn to speak our language and become part of our... Rome came through and just started leveling stuff. And so in many ways, this does describe Rome. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed 
with this miry or common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, ten kings, in the days of the ten-toed kingdom, the iron and clay kingdom, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these other kingdoms, the previous kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. I said all that to say this. The succession, when Daniel looked at it, was head, sides, belly, legs, toes. So it looks like these kingdoms should run in succession. And historically they did. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Ten-toed kingdom? During which Christ returns to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed? Did that happen? Not yet. No. But how was it presented? All is one statue. All is one succession of things. So here again we see, we know from history, that these were actual, literal, genuine kingdoms that happened on planet Earth. Babylon, yes, absolutely, historic reality. Medo-Persia, yes. Greece, yes. Rome, yes. Ten-toed kingdom, not yet. Not found in history, not anywhere. Even though they are sequential in Daniel's image, suddenly there's a 2,000-plus year gap. Suddenly... There's a gap of time just like Jesus stopping in the middle of a sentence. And now we're in the times of the Gentiles. Now we're in the time of the church. And after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God is going to return his interests back to Israel, and he's going to do what all the prophets have said he is going to do, which is punish Israel. Time of trouble such as never was, ever will be again. And what's going to come of that? Israel is going to be restored. David's greater son is going to sit on David's throne, ruling from Jerusalem, and all the kingdom promises are going to come to their full fruition. Now, that's what the Bible teaches. But you have to understand how prophecy in the Old Testament works, and then you have to understand what we're living in right now. We're living in this time of the Gentiles, the time of the church. This is why, by the way, Paul tells us in writing to the Thessalonians that there's a day coming when Jesus is going to come back and get the church, get his bride, to take him off the planet because the wrath of God has already been satisfied on our account by Jesus on the cross. So when the day of the Lord comes and the wrath of God is poured out, we can't be here. We can't fall under the wrath of God twice. That would be double jeopardy. It would also be saying that what Christ did at Calvary was not sufficient to completely remove us from the wrath of God. We would have to pay our own debt even after Jesus paid it. 
And so Paul says that there's going to be a man. We're going to look at all this. It's all coming up. Paul writes about the man of sin who's going to stand in the temple showing himself that he is God and he's going to establish a covenant. And here we go again. The 70th week kicks in. And at some point, we're gone. And then he returns his attention to Israel and finishes the 70th week and finishes the ten-toed kingdom stuff and finishes the day of vengeance of our God and all the rest of the glorious language in Isaiah 61. That all still has to happen. But not yet, not now, not while we're here. Then, in the future, it's going to occur. And that, my friends, is what Matthew 24 is about. Mm -hmm. And that's where we'll start next week. Can we safely say that that was all introduction? We can safely say that every bit of that was introduction. Great big scan of the Bible for you. Yes, sir. So when you're studying the Bible, you know, you are a big proponent of... The scriptures say what they mean, mean what they say. Absolutely. And how do you guide your way through that as a student of the, you know, right. the scriptures? That's where teachers and pastors come in. Yeah, I, as my daughter just said, that's why Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, God gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. You know, the church needs teaching. Right. But these things are available. These things can be known. I'm passing on what I've learned. Because these things can be known, it just takes diligence. It just takes study. Revelation. And a certain amount of revelation, absolutely. So, any other questions about all that? Do you feel like you learned something this morning? Okay. Anything else? What's so interesting is he says he'll make the covenant with many. Yes. There's such a small bit of the land of Israel there to make a covenant with, and you really can't call it Israel. But there had to be an Israel. I mean, after 70 AD, there was no Israel in Jerusalem. Then you have World War I, World War II, Hitler, all that stuff. 1948, Israel is reestablished as a nation, remarkable on the stage of history. No people, group, and nation like that has ever been completely wiped out and then reestablished in their own area again. And so now God setting up world geopolitics has set it up in exactly the way where there can be a covenant to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. 70-week deal that would include being able to establish the sacrifices and the grain offerings and all that stuff again. They're working on that now. They're working on it now. And my own thing is the people who want to say that was Titus, you're sitting there that wait, you mean Jesus returned? And we don't have it recorded anywhere in any yeah. of our books that, oh, hey, I saw Jesus come down and return. Isn't there a theory that he went to jail? Yes. Or no. No, that's a different thing. No, we'll no. talk about that stuff. Then. No, there's no, there's no ca- canon book. We, we, we lost that in, yeah. in writing that nobody recorded. Yeah, that Jesus came back and nobody knew. Now, the, the preterists will tell you that he did come back in 70 AD, yeah. but that he came back in judgment and that it was a spiritual fulfillment not a physical fulfillment, except that, as I kept stressing this morning, all the previous kingdoms were physical kingdoms, physical, on earth, you know, real, genuine kingdoms. There's no reason to think that his return is going to be some kind of spiritual thing. But again, these are all the reasons I'm not a preterist. 
you know, it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work with the text. But you're right. You would think if Jesus came back, someone would have noticed, especially as we continue into Matthew 24, and he describes all of the things that happen in the heavenlies when he comes back. You would think someone would have noticed. And wrote it down. That would have been At least. So you're a futurist, right? Very much so. Yes. I don't know how else to read the Bible. I, I don't know how to read it and not end up at futurist. I am futurist. I am premillennial. I am pre-tribulational. You know, I'm pre-everythingist. Yeah. Anything else? Now, what my daughter was getting at and I'm sorry. that I dismissively waved my hand at her about, <laughs> she was actually talking about Baha'ism. Because in Persia back in the 1800s, a guy showed up. He had a, a forerunner, kind of like um, kind of like John the Baptist, like Toyota. Did you just say that? He had a forerunner like Toyota. Man, I, I should never pause in a sentence. He had a forerunner, rather like John the Baptist, who was called the Bob, and except it's B-A-B, the Bob predicted the coming of the Bahu'Allah, which simply means the glory of God. The Bahu'Allah came and announced himself on the planet. Of course, you hear the word Allah right in there. You, can, you know where the roots are coming from. They're not coming from Christianity. He claimed that he was Jesus on the planet again, and then he spent most of his life in prison. So well done, Jesus. Came back to the planet, sat in prison for a while, start a religion. If you've ever seen the T-shirts that say, like, one planet, one people, please, that's the Baha'is. That's their stuff. So, anything else? Did you enjoy your morning? Yes, sir. All right, good. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.